Good morning, church. It's great to see those of you who are here in person. For all those of you participating online with us, we're so glad that you have joined us today. I, I grew up uh, doing a lot of extracurricular stuff like many of you. I, was, uh, I went to high school in a school just outside of Dallas, and we had an athletic trainer. She was the most well-known, well-respected athletic trainers in, in all of the state of Texas. And, but her answer to everything was ibuprofen and ice. So when it came to medicating us, offer medicine to us, no matter what, you have a sprained ankle, you need ibuprofen and ice. Your back a little sore, ibuprofen and ice. You have a concussion, ibuprofen and ice. A tummy ache, ibuprofen and ice. Uh, and we, we just joked with Coach Wolf. That it was like ibuprofen and ice. That was her medicine to solve everything. I had a grandmother, my, my mom's mom, uh, we called her B. Her name was Bobby. We called her B. B's medicine for everything was Tums. If your tummy ached, you need to take a Tum. You have a headache, get you some Tums. Runny nose, get you some Tums. She's an old country woman. Tums and bacon grease solved everything, all right? Get you some Tums and a little shot of bacon grease. This will make your body good. Uh, when it comes to medicine and medication... I don't know what it is that our world needs today. And I'm not just talking about vaccines and cures for COVID and other viruses and sicknesses. I'm talking about social, cultural, global issues around us. What is the medicine we need? Because one of my concerns is that there are a lot of Christians who are reaching for medicine that will never satisfy. They're reaching for leaders or policies to try to solve problems that only God can bring a cure and healing for. Um... And then I'm a little concerned that sometimes in church we can throw around what sounds like medicine, but it lands on the ears of a lot of people as just spiritual platitudes and just trite statements. So, I mean, I, I would love to stand up in front of you today and say things like, Jesus is still on his throne and God is overall, which are statements I believe to be true and foundation for who we are. And for some of you, you hear that and it gives you great comfort today and it's a reminder all of us need. And for some of you, you, you hear it and you're like, I believe it, but what does that mean for everyday life? Like, how does that make some of the things that we are struggling with right now in our world, how does it make it better? And then it's easy for me to stand up here and say what the world needs is love. And I think we could agree, a medicine that the whole world needs today is love. The Bible affirms this. The Bible talks a lot about love. God is love. Dr. King is the one who said, hate can't drive out hate, only love can drive out hate. But there were even followers of Dr. King who began to question if King's method of love and peace and nonviolence, could that really work in a world with so many issues? Is love what we need? And if so... What is that going to look like? So Mark chapter 12, we were in this last week. If you have your Bibles, I'm encouraging you to open them to Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. Uh, Jesus is already coming to Jerusalem in Mark chapter 12. He's just a few days away from his death on a cross. And now you have all these people who are trying to catch Jesus in something he says so they can arrest him and do away with him. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and all these groups are like teaming up trying to take out Jesus and nothing seems to be working. So then you have a teacher of the law, a scholar, guy's really smart. He comes up to Jesus in chapter 12, verse 28, and he asks Jesus, what is the greatest command? And maybe he's trying to catch Jesus in something he says. Maybe it's just a question out of curiosity. There are hundreds of commands in the Old Testament. And he's asking Jesus, what's the one that hovers over all of them? What's the umbrella? What's that one at the very top of all the commands? What is it? And Jesus could have responded in a lot of different ways. 
But Jesus' response is what Jews call the Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Jesus' first response is, The greatest command is this, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus says, command number two, like right after that, is this. You love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there are times when answers are easier to receive when you have seen it lived out in someone's life. Like, it's easier for you to receive an answer from someone when you have seen that truth lived out in their life. It's easier for my kids when they have some questions about why Casey and I believe certain things about life or do certain things we do. When we're able to say, have you seen how we've tried to live this out for the last few years? It's easier for them to receive that. When Jesus responds with these commands of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus isn't just sitting back thinking up an answer. He has embodied this throughout his life. This is his way of life. It was his anthem. This wasn't just a a New Year's resolution. Jesus was trying to live this out in in all of his life. Every Jew would have recited the Shema at least twice a day. So when Jesus responds with the first and the greatest command of the Lord your God is one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that would not have surprised anyone. It wouldn't have caught them off guard. They would have been praying that same prayer every day. I think everyone would have nodded in agreement. Yes, the Shema, that is it. That is the greatest command. It's the second command Jesus mentions that helps get Jesus killed. Love your neighbor as yourself. Easy to recite. So hard to live. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard it was said, love, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which is found nowhere in the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yeah, Jesus is saying, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, because the ethic of life had become for so many people. That had become their ethic of life. Loving your neighbor was too hard. So you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So for, for time, even up to today, it seems to be so easy. Like as much as we wish we could live out the Shema and love your neighbor as yourself, I think it's a, it's a lot better for us just to acknowledge, you know what, there's a lot more hatred And bitterness inside of me that I want to admit is there. There is forms of hostility and hatred that is just lodged in the DNA of humanity and the DNA of Americans that we will fight against for the rest of our lives. This is so hard to try to live out. And it helped get Jesus killed. So um, when it comes, let me do just just for a moment, I want to focus on, on Jesus, who is the light of the world, And what I want to do today is to help us process what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and how the church is called to do this. And there's no one we look at to teach us how to do this more than Jesus. So let me, uh, I'm just going to light a few candles to help us this morning. And hopefully those of you who are online, you're able to to see this. If not, uh, let me just try to walk you through it, and hopefully this will make a little sense. First and foremost, Jesus is the foundation of our lives. Jesus is the light of the world. And I want to talk about some many lights 
that Jesus wants the church and that Jesus wants people to embody as we try to follow the example of Jesus in the world. But Jesus is the foundation. Your belief system, your conversion experience, as important as those things are, that's not the foundation of your life. Jesus is the foundation of the church. The story I love to, I, I just love, is the story of uh, parents who, they didn't go to church, but they sent their five-year-old son to church one day. And the five-year-old went to Bible class, went to church, went home, and they started asking the five-year-old about church experience. What was it like today? And he didn't remember a lot about the worship service, and he didn't remember a lot about the content of class, and, but the, the parents kept asking. And they said, well, who was your teacher in class? And the kid said, I don't remember her name, but I think it was Jesus' grandmother. And they're like, what makes you think it was Jesus' grandma? And, and, and the kids said, because Jesus is all that woman could talk about. And for all you grandparents out there, you know exactly what that is like. It's like this woman. He didn't remember a lot of what she talk, ta- taught about. He just remembered what she talked about. She talked about Jesus over and over and over again. Jesus is the foundation. Now, let me go through seven of these. Now, Once I'm done, you're going to think of a lot of other candles I could have lit, but I want to help us just think through rhythm and balance and all of these flames that Jesus wants to be alive in your life and in the church. So um, the first one, let me light here, is uh, discipleship. That what Jesus has invited us into is more than just a conversion experience. It's more than just status change. It's more than you being converted, confessing Jesus is the Lord of your life, being baptized, and then receiving a get-out-of-hell-free card where there's some safety net that catches you in the end. It is an honor that Jesus has invited us into a life where Jesus has said, I want you to try to live like me. I want you to follow in my example. Discipleship is, I mean, it could be every, all these other candles. Jesus has invited us into this way of life where we have the honor of living life that reflects Jesus. And then you also have prayer. And in your church experience growing up, there, we, we call this a lot of different things. I mean, there, of course there's prayer, but then some of you grew up and you were taught a lot about having quiet time with God or intimacy with God or personal relationship with God. And then there's communal prayer, but prayer is about dwelling in God. It's, it's having some relationship with God where there is communication and there is listening. And when it comes to following Jesus... Jesus didn't just think it was important for his mind to connect with God, with his Father, anywhere he went. There were times when Jesus felt, he felt it was so important for his physical body to go to another place to connect to God. So Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus would say no to crowds and sometimes no to ministry to get away, to dwell with God. It was that important for Jesus. It needs to be important for us too. There's a, the importance of community. Jesus modeled this in his life, where Jesus called together a community. At times it was made up of men and women. At times there were 70. At times there were 12 of the 12 apostles. Sometimes there were three. Jesus was constantly surrounded by meaningful relationships, lived in connection to other people. When Jesus launches his church in Acts chapter 2, there are thousands of baptisms, but Acts 2 ends with the church that comes together where they have everything in common and they're breaking bread. Their praying prayers are meeting together. In Acts chapter 4 verse 32, the church had everything in common. I love the testimonies 
that have come from people in this church who throughout 2020, some of you who suffered illnesses and, and sicknesses and you battled through COVID, how people in the church came along to surround you, to feed you with more food than you could ever imagine, than you had room to hold, how people tried their best and safe ways to take care of you. It's what it means to be the church. Evangelism. You cannot read Jesus. You cannot read the New Testament without seeing how important evangelism is to the life of a believer and the life of a church. When Jesus would send out the 12 on mission trips, like in Luke chapter 9, or when Jesus would send out the 70, or in some of your Bibles, the 72, in Luke chapter 10, it was to go do good deeds, but it was always to communicate a message. And there's that quote that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and I've used it before too, to preach the gospel at, gospel at all times and when, and when necessary, use words. And we've often used that of how we need to commit ourselves to a life of service. But following Jesus is not just committing yourself to a life of service and good deeds. It's that in some way we are communicating the good news of Jesus to the world. Evangelism has to be a part of our message and how we live this out. There's worship, and I know worship's a broad, uh, we can use that in a lot of different ways. But there is the importance of individuals and a community having moments in our lives where we are acknowledging who our God is, when we are swearing allegiance to God and nothing else. The worship is such a vital, important part of what it means to follow Jesus. And then we have what I will call just sacraments. We're from the beginning of Christianity. The bread and the cup has been so important, not just to connect an individual to God, but to connect people to each other, the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, where there was this meal that is holding people together. And, and even when you read the Bible about the end of times and when Jesus comes back to make all things right, there's this messianic feast where there will be bread and food and drink that we will celebrate when God makes everything right. It's an important part of what it means to follow Jesus. And last but not least... There is compassion, uh, service. We may use the word justice, where Jesus desires to set right uh, wrongs right, where Jesus desires to, to recreate the world into God's original intent, to make all things right. So when you read the life of Jesus, there are times when Jesus is going to the margins and Jesus is defending the children and, and, and Jesus is standing with those who've been pushed to the outskirts of society. There are times when you have Jesus who would touch people with leprosy, therefore making him unclean before he healed people of leprosy. Because Jesus wasn't just interested in healing physical diseases, but also social diseases. And I know there are other things. I mean, I could put Bible study in a multiple of the, uh, different, a few different flames on here under discipleship. And they, so there are other facets of Christian life. I just want you to see that when it comes to being followers of Jesus and when it comes to being the church, there are many different, many flames that Jesus is trying to set on fire for us. So sometimes the way I talk about spirituality and growth, sometimes I talk about it as a rhythm or a dance, which makes sense to some of you. And for some of you, you have no rhythm. I've seen you try. I've seen you try to clap the songs in church. That's why there are some churches who believe clapping is a sin because it's not that you read the sin in the Bible, it's that you clap so bad that has to be a sound of hell, not heaven. Like I, there's no rhythm in some of you, I know it. But when it comes to this rhythm, like there's so many things of this dance with God. Now, 
If you've ever been to a wedding where there's been dancing or maybe a cruise ship and there was dancing or you've been in a restaurant where there's live music being played and there's a, a little dance floor, isn't it awkward if one person goes out on the dance floor all by themselves? Like if there was ever a wedding and they're like, now the bride's going to dance with her dad, but they've decided just to let the dad dance by himself. Would that not be one of the weirdest experiences? But when bride dances with dad, even though dad may have no rhythm, Chuck Petrie and Stoney Ramsey, yeah, these, these people have no rhythm at all. When they dance, like people are crying and they're taking pictures. It's so, they love it. And when it comes to this dance with God, I mean, it's about you learning to dance and have this rhythm with God, but it's the church learning to have this rhythm too. Now, let me ask you this. All right. If you ever went to a house and there was a light fixture that had five light bulbs and one was out, just a show of hands, how many of you would notice? How many of you would say something about it? Anybody? It's like one of those questions of, you know, if you have a friend who has something in their teeth, would you say something? And right now, if you walked into this worship time, you're watching online, if you look and you see these eight candles up here, but three of them aren't lit, would you notice that they were not lit? I would, th I would think you probably would. Now, you may be thinking, you know, is this Advent, even though it's January? Is there something going on with the candles? And that's why they're not lit, but I think you would notice they weren't lit. And I think heaven sometimes looks down and notices when there are certain parts of our hearts or certain parts of the church in which there is not a flame. Because sometimes we can focus on certain areas and totally neglect other areas. We can try to have lives that are connected to God through prayer and through discipleship and through worship and through things like communion, yet we aren't really sure what to do with service or justice, or we're fully committed to service, but there's really no flame burning for prayer, which is our energy source. Like that's how you're tapping into the foundation of your life. And sometimes we can think, maybe not all the flames are, are going, but at least there are a few, so maybe we're okay. In which heaven is looking and responding with, okay, yeah, I'm glad there are a few flames, but Jesus wants all of these flames that are coming to life in the church to be who it is God has called us to be. So those of us who grew up going to church and doing church activities, you probably remember the song, This Little Light of Mine, Don't Let Satan It Out, Right? Don't let Satan blow it out. And I'm sure part of the enemy, part of Satan, would love to blow out the flame of Jesus in your life. But I think what the enemy would love to do, and loves to do, is can the enemy blow out some of these many flames? To keep us focused on some things while completely ne neglecting things like evangelism or parts of service to keep the people of God from being who God has called us to be. And the call of God isn't for us to be perfect in all of these areas, it's to be faithful in these areas. Because if a few of these flames are missing in your life or in the church, it's going to have an impact on connection, on mission, on unity. When all, but when all these flames are like lit and they are... They're on fire. When all of them are, are working, we become this mighty witness to the world of God's faithfulness. Um, <clears throat> so let's just rewind a few days. Because Wednesday, I think most of us can agree, was, was a dark day in the history of our nation, right? 
I know most of us in our lives, I mean, we have witnessed, we've witnessed uh, forms of riots before, and we have seen peaceful protests and different kind of protests, and maybe you participated in some of those, and we've seen riots that have gone wrong where there's been violence. We've seen these things, and, and there are a lot of different motivations for them. There's motivations from people wanting to be heard to people who are just, there's years or decades of just built up anger, and there's rage, and there's a lot of different motivation. And this past week, we witnessed something that we've never witnessed in our lifetime, where arguably the most sacred building in our nation like it, it still blows my mind. I'm sure it blows your mind too. Like how easy it seemed to be for people to like take this place over. And there are a lot of different motivations that drove the people who did this too on Wednesday. There were motivations of wanting to be heard. There were motivations of convictions that they don't want to go away, of somebody they want to still be president. And, and there was some motivation of racism and white supremacy, a, a lot of different motivations that were there. Now, one thing 2020 taught me is there is an article for everything. If you want to find an article for something, Google just a few times and you will find it. So you'll find all kind of conspiracy theories. If you want to find it, go and find it. I think most of us can agree that for every person who stormed the Capitol on Wednesday, they did vote for Donald Trump. They voted Republican. But I hope we can also see that what happened on Wednesday was not a reflection of the entire Republican Party. At least most Republicans I know. Now, here's what was disturbing to me. There were a number of things that I think were disturbing to a lot of us over the past few days. One of the things that was most disturbing to me was Christian nationalism. It was the number of images I saw with people either wearing a cross or carrying a cross or holding a Jesus banner, thinking that what they were doing was in the name of Christianity. Christian nationalism is thinking that what we're doing is in the name of Christianity. Like, we have got to protect Christianity at all costs. So there were those on Wednesday who, in their mind, they truly believe that if Donald Trump is not president, that Christianity is gone. It's gone. And I, we, I think most of us, have great respect for the American flag a symbol of sacrifice and freedom and opportunity that either people have been able to live into in the past or can live into, hopefully live into in the future. And this is a flag that needs to be flown in a lot of public buildings and maybe in front of your home and at the Olympics. But the American flag has no place sitting on communion tables in churches or on stages in churches or draped on crosses. For you cannot take something and mix it and intertwine it with something that is pointing to the eternal God. You just can't do it. And one of the things that is most disturbing to me is how so it seems like so many Christians have either taken their politics and have wrapped it in a Jesus banner, or they have taken their Christianity and they have allowed themselves to wrap it in a political banner. And Jesus teaches you cannot serve God and wealth. And I think Jesus models in his life you cannot serve or worship God and Caesar, God and president, God and party, God and politics. It doesn't work that way. God is sovereign. We sung about it this morning. God is sovereign. God is the one we worship. Nothing, nothing else. And one of the things that disturbs me is there seems to be a number of Christians who the driving narrative in their life 
It's their politics. And if you don't believe me, just watch how defensive people can get the moment they feel like their candidate or their party has been questioned or critiqued in any way. If you don't believe me, how many people do you know? Because I can name a number of them who over the last two to three months, they were not invited to Thanksgiving or Christmas with family because of one Facebook post or because of one issue or one policy or because of how they voted or how they didn't vote. And what blows me away isn't just that some families chose to sever relationships, hopefully temporarily. Not just that it happened, it's that how easy it seemed to happen with so many people. I know people who spent weeks making phone calls to complete strangers, trying to convince them to vote in certain ways. And I am not against Christians being involved in politics. But those same people, I would ask, when is the last time you invited someone to church? You invited someone into the kingdom of God? You invited someone into a prayer time? You invited someone into a Bible study? You just invited them into a conversation about Jesus, and there's complete silence. If your Christianity doesn't reflect Christ, you need to rethink your Christianity. And if your Christianity reflects your party in every way, you need to rethink your Christianity. Because any Christianity that isn't about loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, isn't the Christianity that Jesus died to set up, establish, and to launch in the world. So I just want people to know, and we talked about them own family, like there are kids and there are people and there are nations watching America right now. And there are kids and people in the world watching the church. And there are people right here in our country who are watching the church looking to catch us in hypocrisy looking to catch us in ways that we are off, looking to question, and let's not give them any more reasons to doubt that we're following the one we say we are. So, as we come to the communion today, and as I end this message, I want to invite us to ask Jesus to light up all these parts of our hearts. Because when we're off, when we're off, and we're chasing politics and thinking that spending five minutes a day with God and yet feasting on three plus hours of cable news that somehow we're able to live a kingdom life in that, you can't do it. And what happens is these different flames are put out in our lives where there are some people who don't want to evangelize people who are outside of their circle because they don't love them. You can't evangelize people you aren't willing to love. Or we try to filter some of these things through all of our political filters. So when it comes to justice and compassion and service, we sometimes think, well, how does my political party tell me how I need to, how I need to engage in some of these things? Or our community isn't the kind of community Jesus set up where all people are drawn together. It becomes a very selective community. But when all these flames are lit the way Jesus wants them to be lit, there is this mighty, mighty witness in the world of God's faithfulness. And the church is called to rise above to join with God, to live courageously into this life. And sometimes I feel like I'm at my best with God when I don't just come to God and say, okay, I just want to focus on Jesus being the light of the world. Jesus is the light. Look at the light. And there are times I, I encourage, even in counseling, hey, look at the light. 
Like, don't focus on your darkness, look at the light. But I also think there are times, like today, as we come to the bread and the cup, where we need to just say, you know, God, there are probably more, there's more darkness in me that I want to admit. And I just need to name it for what it is and ask you to help light this again. That wherever there's darkness in your life or darkness in the church, can God, God, will you point it out so that we can look more and more like Jesus? Maybe there is more hatred in us than we want to admit, or more racism in us than we want to admit, but Jesus is the one that sets this right. So for those of you in person, I'm asking you to take the bread and the cup now. For those of you online, if you have the bread and the cup ready, if you want to get it, that's fine. If not, will you just come into this moment of reflection and prayer and intercession with us for a moment? And I would ask us to pray. So bow our heads and let's close our eyes. God, as much as we want your light, we acknowledge there are a lot of things that keep us from seeing it. So God, we repent of places we have given our allegiance to things that will not be eternal. And as we take the bread and the cup today, we're reminded of the one who gave, up it, gave everything up, gave it all up to set everything right. God, light us, light us on fire today. Speak light into our darkness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.